I'm Darren Ellis, Higher Education Engagement Director at Unite Students. We're the UK's largest provider of purpose-built student accommodation with around 75,000 students living with us across 177 properties in 27 leading university towns and cities. I just want to reassure everyone that we're observing social distancing on this podcast by recording this virtually from our own homes or offices. With me today, I have Professor Steve West, Vice-Chancellor of the University of the West of England and Chair of UUK's Mental Health and Higher Education Advisory Board. I have Rosie Tressler, CEO of Student Minds, Yvonne Turnbull, Director of Student Advice and Wellbeing at Liverpool John Moores University, and Jenny Shaw, Student Experience Director for Unite Students. It's great to have you all here. Thank you for joining me. In the last episode, we talked about the transition to university for new students, and we touched on wellbeing and mental health as part of that discussion. A good transition into university life sets the tone for the rest of the academic year and beyond, and ensuring that students settle in well can support good mental health. However, since last month's episode, we've gone through that time in the academic year when we always see a peak in mental health and welfare incidents in student accommodation. We've seen that within a completely new context with COVID, of course, so I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about there. But before we do that, I'd like to back up a bit. Just a few years ago, student mental health and well-being was barely on the agenda. Now it's front and centre of higher education policy. Steve and Rosie, you have both been involved in the development of national policy and practice around student mental health for some years. Why did it come to the fore when it did? And what do you think have been the most important advances over recent years? Let's hear from Steve first. Thanks. I think the first thing is that society started to talk about mental health and well-being in a much more open way. Uh, and that really set the tone for, I think, universities beginning a conversation. And of course, alongside that, we had ministers who were very clearly focusing on ensuring that universities took mental health and well-being more seriously. So I think a number of things have helped us um, uh, move forward in a more open and transparent way. And Universities UK working with partners such as Student Minds, but also the NHS, have really started to focus on what can we do together to ensure that universities are uh, adequately engaging with mental health and well-being. And of course, the spotlight being on universities has, to some extent, been quite helpful because it means that there's a momentum. It means that there is a focus that does engage vice-chancellors. My personal view is not enough but we are making some progress. So I think it's, it's a combination of things, a more open society, um, a focus from ministers, uh, and also then a collective view within Universities UK that we wanted to engage with this. Um, and I have to say that that momentum is a gathering pace um, uh, as, as we develop our thinking and as we begin to understand what more we can do. Thank you, Steve. Um- Let's hear now then from Rosie. What what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that Steve pulls out some really important points there around what has been the trajectory for this issue over decades, really. And, you know, if if anyone who enjoys getting nerdy about history wants to look into kind of the history of um, mental health, it's it's fascinating. And, And to be honest, there's a lot that's very shameful if we look back over hundreds of years of how people have been supported but I think there's always been something very positive about education 
about the role that education plays in well-being. And, you know, from the very first universities in the UK, there was always this um, pastoral element. So I think um, definitely useful to look at that kind of longer term history. I'd say looking at the last decade, there are a few key things that, that stand out for me. And I think a huge part to start with, I think, is the student and staff activism around this. So um, recognizing the role that both mental health professionals and also non-mental health professionals play, I think our understanding of that as a society has come on leaps and bounds. We now understand that all of us can have a role to play in, in creating positive cultures. And we've seen student groups, we've seen, you know, uh, years of things like University Mental Health Day, where you've seen, um, you know, uh, student services, mental health advisors and mentors, counselling teams, working with their students' unions. So there's definitely been a big focus on that. Um, I'd agree that I, I guess there's been a few things that have also stood out, two or three things I'd pick up. So the strategic partnerships, I think, between organisations in recent years, I think, have been... Um, you know, really successful. So Steve, you know, is one of the vice chancellors that um, has been really engaged with this topic. I think, um, as he says, there's still a long way to go before all leadership teams really recognize this. But we know that things like the Step Change Framework, um, recently named as the Mentally Healthy Universities Framework, um, has really helped people to understand all the components of that whole university approach. And we followed up with then what's the ongoing lever, what's going to sustain that change over the decades to come. And that's why we worked with a range of partners to develop the University Mental Health Charter. So bringing that kind of um, student, practitioner and sector voice all together. We've also seen other major changes. So I think and real increase in research and policy work, you know, things like the Smart End Network, bringing together hundreds of researchers now that want to better understand what works. We've seen major funding schemes. I'm always going to be an advocate for the fact that we, you know, that there needs to be resources going into this work to make it happen. So things like I think the Office for Students Catalyst Scheme really instigated some communities of practice around postgraduate research students, um, international students, NHS partnerships. Um, so there's lots of lots of work that's that's been kicked off there. And then even more recently, you know, we've seen with COVID how people can really pull together um, through this. Um, and, you know, we're really grateful to all the organizations that have worked with us on student space to provide specific support for students during the pandemic. So I think all in all, I think there's a lot of work that's gone on. And I think behind all of those programs sits thousands of people that have all had a personal commitment to this topic. And that's why it's a really exciting area to work in. Thank you, Rosie. And I, I was just struck by your comment about the university sort of mental health charter and, and how so many people have been involved in shaping it. I believe you've involved, you know, student unions, you know, many, even thousands of students have helped shape what that looks like, which, uh, which is, you know, really significant. And, and in terms of that, uh, charter itself, how, how many, uh, what's next for it? So uh, how many universities have, you know, signed up for it? What's the sort of next steps? And also, I believe there was a there was a an award scheme as part of it as well. I wondered if you could share a little bit about uh, what might happen with that, please. Yeah, so with the Charter, um, it was all focused around developing an evidence-informed um, framework for the whole university approach, support that ongoing inquiry debate, 
And then an award scheme that would follow that, which would be able to recognize providers that demonstrate excellent practice. Um, so, you know, today it's involved um, thousands of, of staff. We did a road share around all the nations, um, lots of workshops, focus groups, um, over 200 different um, providers or SUs, HE organizations involved in some capacity. At this stage, though, with the pilot, we're working with um, three institutions to see how that assessment process um, works and constantly developing that. And in the new year, that's when we'll open it up for institutions. I guess we appreciate that it's been a very challenging year. Um, and so, um, you know, we're constantly in our planning, recognizing that the charter scheme has to be um, done in a way that is supportive to institutions, um, but it's still stretching. Um, so I think in terms of next steps for us, it's about uh, completing the pilots, going live with the award scheme in the new year and inviting institutions to, to take part. Lovely. Thank you very much. And you also referenced, you know, the important the sort of pastoral element that's always existed within universities. And so having heard from uh, from Rosie and from Steve, Yvonne, I just wanted to ask you, um, what, listening to what you've heard there, how is how is this translated into the accommodation context? What changes have you seen uh, in your own institution uh, and indeed across the whole uh, the sector as a whole? Oh, I think I think the changes have been huge and and most welcome. I have to say, but I think we we've gone from a, a provision where accommodation providers have literally just provided a roof over people's heads to a situation now in the current time where providers are are providing that holistic experience for students and connecting with that holistic view of students that institutions are having to take on. I think, as Rosie said, it's not just about the one one faceted area of of somebody's learning. It's 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 the the entire complex scenario that they find themselves in as being in higher education. Um, I think I mean, the university that I work at is is relatively unique. I think in that we don't have any of our own accommodation, so we rely on private providers throughout for our um, accommodation for our new students, and that relationship has changed dramatically over the years. We've seen. Uh, providers come to us who want to take on additional responsibilities, who want to be doing more. And I think that that duty of care that we owe to students in this context has really developed um, over the last probably four or five years uh, to to a point where I think it's it's much more robust and much more effective for students. That connectivity between situations that occur in halls and then re relay them onto the, the, the campus can be can be quite tricky sometimes, and I think we've moved a long, long way in, in making that that effective and useful. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think I think the, the the big issue for me is is using that complexity um, and taking that in a way that that means that we look at students individually but holistically to make sure that they get their needs met. Thank you, Yvonne, and 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 it, it it's um, really significant. I think that you've you've noticed the huge strides in sort of student welfare support in the in private sector accommodation generally over recent years. Um, Jenny, you've uh, always been a vocal supporter of this and and have been for many years. Uh, what has changed from your perspective? Gosh, from my perspective, absolutely everything has changed. So. Five years ago, you know, when we were first talking about this, people were quite confused um, about why we would even be talking about it or, or interested in in this 
uh, as an area of work. And I, I think partly that was um, a bit of a concern, which you know was was uh, quite right to have this concern that you know why would a why would a private landlord get involved in in this area? Are they equipped to do so? Are they going to are they going to try and do too much that they're not qualified to do? Um, and I think there was also a, a, just a little bit of a belief then as well that. You know, if students had a problem, they would just go and get support, which, of course, is not always the case, as we know. So everything has changed since then. There was a big piece of work to be done just to just to define and recognize um, the, the correct role for an accommodation provider to play within that in partnership with with the university, with students, with students' unions and so on. Uh, and, and having defined that, then kind of work within the sector to professionalize that. So uh, the, the report that, that Student Minds did actually in, in 2017, the, the pilot study in, in Nottingham, um, was, was really important in, in starting to unpick that. And then, of course, last year we had the uh, student Wellbeing Guide from the British Property Federation, which I think set out um, sort of on a national basis, you know, what what that role should be, what the legal limitations were, um, how to to make it work in a safe and professional way. So it's been a it's been quite a journey, um, but uh, I think you know, echoing Yvonne's point, you know, we're we're in a much better place now and uh, a much greater appreciation as well of the role that we play in students' lives and how we all work together in partnership. Thank you, Jenny. Um, and of course, we've touched on, you know, why it came, uh, you know, why has mental, student mental health come to the fore and what have been uh, the most important advances over recent years. We've got some wonderful examples of that. Um, but I also would like to get each of you to comment briefly on what there is still left to do. Um, you know, Steve, um, I'm going to come to you first. At the, at the time of recording this podcast, you're about to chair a Universities UK conference on, on mental health. Um, so can I start with you? What are your thoughts? So I think we've made some progress and Rosie's right to pick up the step change framework and the mentally healthy universities, which is sort of the follow up. And then we also had Minding Our Future. And all of that really was about raising awareness within the sector and across the sector and underlining the importance of partnership working, both with um, NHS um, and also the charitable providers, all of which need to come together. And so I, I think where we are is when I look into the sector, there is still far too much variability. It's very much down to um, individual universities and the teams within them to determine how to position mental health and well-being um, within their institutions. And at the moment, whilst the ambition is that they should be thinking of this at a strategic level, and that means engaging with boards as well as the executive, but actually the entire university, mental health is about everybody engaging and supporting each other. And, and we're not there yet. So um, one of the things that we're now working on, of course, is the charter, and Rosie's touched on that. But also, we've recognised that the leadership teams um, within universities probably need some additional tools and some additional support. So we're working on a leadership tool to try to drive um, the consideration of mental health and well-being in universities at a strategic level. And of course, um, it's battling with all of the other strategically important things that university vice chancellors and their teams are considering. But my argument is actually 
um, this is probably the most important thing that we need to focus on. If we're to be able to really ensure that our staff and students um, are um, being the best that they can be in a university setting and also uh, ensuring that they're well supported uh, in order to get the best performance out of them. So there are some really big strategic reasons why we need to do more work. And it and it starts with looking at how we do the things that we do, everything from the design of the curriculum to the way it's assessed, to the way it's delivered, to the environment, um, the way in which students can access support and services and the way in which staff can interact um, and support students uh, and then get support for themselves. So this is has to be holistic and we're not uh, quite there yet. So for me, all of the projects and all of the work, all of the research has been designed to try and help get this onto a significant agenda because what we're actually talking about is a generational shift. I was very clear uh, a few years ago that, that, that we owe it to this generation um, of students to really focus on mental health and well-being because actually this is about preparing them for what can be a very complex, changing world. And COVID has really highlighted that to us. Um, so we've got to not just focus on the academic endeavor of universities, but we've also got to be preparing people for life. Uh, and I can't think of a better way of engaging with that um, uh, than through mental health and well-being. And what I want to see is every university in the country um, taking this as a strategic priority and delivering on it. And that's a big agenda. Um, and of course, that does mean working in partnership. It means joining things up in our institutions in a way that perhaps we haven't in the past. And it means focusing on both the prevention, the promotion, and the provision of activity and services. Um, and we need to be ensuring that we don't uh, quickly move to a position where we're medicalizing uh, actually quite a lot of what is the normal experiences that we all have during life. Um, so mental health and well-being, mental health we've all got, physical health we've all got, and there are times when we need a bit of support in both of those areas. And for some, there is mental illness. And for those, they need a very different sort of support structure that is about the university working with them, importantly, but also with other providers to help support them to succeed. So that's the big agenda. That's where we've got to go. And that's what the conference is designed to try and start to explore and expose and then progress. Well, there's a, there was a, a lot in, in that answer, Steve, and a lot and lot still to do. I definitely very strongly picked up on the, the sort of holistic nature that you've described within universities, but across the whole sector through partnerships and how we have to all work together uh, to make a difference, really. And, and Rosie, just coming to you, I just wondered what your reflections were on what uh, Steve has just said. Uh, and indeed, what do you think are the you know, the, the key areas that we still need to focus on and improve. Yes, I think I think Steve sets out really well the long-term need and um, all these components, how they work together. Um, so for us, it's, you know, we want to be in an education system where mental health and well-being is truly, you know, a strategic priority. It runs through decision-making, um, we're really focused on the cultures we're creating. And I think, um, I, I do think a lot of the core components are in place for that long-term change. Um, but the, what, in terms of what's needed, it is 
getting to a point where we have that whole university approach, but also that whole city, whole region approach, really, to supporting that health population. Um, there's pockets of good practice where we can see the health of students being really considered in commissioning, services for specific conditions being provided, and then there's other areas where there is a real lack of availability of support. So this is about both what's going on in universities and HE providers, but also what's going on in that health in- infrastructure um, in the NHS in that region as well. And um, I think another part for me is about, you know, making sure that that's through everyone working together. I, I think change happens in a lot of different ways in institutions. And I think a big driver is bottom up. It is through um, you know, passionate change makers and they can be in any, any place. Some of the most passionate change makers I think I've met have been in the accommodation sector. So I think, um, you know, and some of the most fulfilling, um, and brilliant training sessions I've been involved with has been with security staff and cleaning staff who are so well connected in and, and know what the reality is like for students day to day. Um, so it's about, you know, recognizing the role that they play and, and all, all the different um, colleagues that, that make up that system. Um, and then finally, I, I guess a major point for me really is about us moving towards what Steve talks about, about prevention. So as tackling the root causes that we know are driving um, that increase in mental health difficulties. For me, that a big part of that is to do with us approaching this through an intersectional lens. So really understanding the impact that discrimination or barriers that are in our existing systems, what that creates and some of the trauma that can create for particular student communities. Um, for example, you know, we just study a few years ago looking at the experience of LGBTQ plus students, you know, the things that help and the things that um, actually create environments where people don't feel safe or supported. Um, and we're now seeing that coming through really strongly this year around um, racialized and minoritized students. Um, there is some brilliant research that's just been kicked off actually, kicked off in the last um, few weeks um, by a PhD student at King's College London called Nakasi, and she's running the Black Students Wellbeing Study. So I think the more that we can understand how um, different communities of students are experiencing university, the better we will then be able to address this and respond to it. Another root causes, you know, another challenges that we need to work more on involve looking at actually curriculum design, how we actually set up learning and, and where that can help and where it can hinder well-being and also transition points. They, they come up again and again. It's that transition in, through and out of, of your university experience where we know people can be more at risk to start to develop challenges. So a lot of the kind of building blocks are there, but there's, I guess, a lot to do before we're really making sure all students can thrive in higher education. Thank you, Rose. I mean, there was a tremendous amount in there. I mean, uh, I just want to pick out a few things. Just, just again, that importance that you highlighted of transition. Our last podcast uh, discuss that in depth, uh, and I absolutely understand just that importance. Uh, I was struck by the importance of the training events that you talked about, and just the importance of all the members of staff who, who get involved. I mean, our you know housekeepers or security guard they are regularly 
uh, well, we have our Stars Award program, our recognition for staff, but they are reg- they regularly feature in that because they are so important. And I've also heard plenty of examples of universities' recognition schemes where time and time again, some of the most important people who are in- interacting with students are indeed you know, those people closest to them and who see them most often, you know, and uh, I was really struck by that. I, I, I was struck by the black students' well-being study you're talking about, and that's something uh, that we want to talk more about uh, in the new year. That's something we're thinking and want to do a, a podcast on in Q1, so we'd certainly like to revisit that point. And uh, the final bit about this pockets of good practice, I was really struck by the fact that it is clearly in, in a very good place in some areas and, and others uh, perhaps not quite as much. And how will that pocket of good practice, in your view, get? how will those pockets of good practice get shared. What's your thoughts on that, Rosie? I mean, I might sound a bit of a cliche, but um, I do think that peer support is a massive part of it. So the way that we support people to organize and share learning with each other. um, Again, I do. There's nothing that makes things move faster than funding. So when we see funders, national funders recognizing this work needs to be supported and we need, you know, funding going into, you know, university, students, unions, all and then all the kind of connecting organizations who create, you know, the uh, local university infrastructure. Um that that's when people can really get their heads together and really look at the barriers and the opportunities. Um, so I, I'm a big believer in those communities of practice and reflective practice, giving people the space to really think critically about their own role. And it's interesting because Steve mentions and the work that's going on with university leaders. I think that's going to be really interesting. You know, for some leaders, it might be the first time that they've actually sat down and really reflected on what their experience have been in their lifetime, what their, where their mental health and well-being may have fluctuated where their family members may have experienced challenges and i think the more that people can personally connect with this topic and understand it the more we start to build that momentum around change thank you rosie thank you um yvonne um so what are the key areas for development that you uh, uh still feel remain well, I think Steve and Rosie have covered a lot of the ground already, but, but I think um, we really need to make sure that we are starting to value the skills that engender positive mental well-being. And, and I don't think necessarily we've done that in, a, in a, a significant and coordinated way across the sector so far, but I think that work's starting to come through. And I think that's going to be really, really important. You know, we're, we're giving students skills for life here, not only in in their education, but also in in the way they manage themselves and the, and the way in which they manage their mental health and and can and can deal with some of those those complex challenges that life will throw at them. Um, I, I, I like the phrase compassionate campuses. You know, I think we need to work on that that compassionate campus. We need everybody to be on board with the the mental well-being agenda you know we need robust health and well-being strategies across institutions and we need to make sure that 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 builds on the really good work that's coming out of of student minds and, and UK and, and all the rest of it and i think um the, the the focus that we've had from the OFS with funding i mean rosie was was saying earlier that you know without funding attracts attention doesn't it and 
it gets it gets people engaged. There's a huge amount of money through the Catalyst projects that, that, that's ongoing, and there's a huge potential for us to use the results of those Catalyst projects to really change the way in which student mental health is supported. You know, we can remove some of those barriers. We can remove the fractures between services, both institutional and statutory services, and make sure that that, that students can walk into university and can access what they're they're meant to be accessing without undue barrier. And, and that has to be fundamentally a, a, an objective for all of us, doesn't it, in the future? Indeed. Thank, thank you, Yvonne. Um, and finally, same question uh, to, to, you, to you, Jenny. What do you think are the key areas for development that still remain? Yeah, I want to pick up on Rose's point about uh, intersectionality and the experiences of different students, because um, I feel that um, there's quite a lot to be done, or certainly um, that I, I'm interested in doing within Unite around accommodation as a community for everyone. So uh, given what we've learned about the different experiences of, of different groups of students within higher education over the, the last year or so, um, what does accommodation feel like to you? Um, as, a, as a black student, as a trans student, as a disabled student, does it meet your needs? Is it, is it meeting your needs in an equitable way? Does it feel like a respectful community? Do you feel psychologically safe there? Um, you know, what, what, what's that experience like? Because actually that, that safe, nurturing, respectful community is, is really foundational, isn't it, to, to good mental health and well-being. It's, you know, if that's not there, you can put all the services you want in, um, but it's it's not going to get you where you need to be. So I think that's a big one. I was also really struck by uh, Steve's point about a generational shift. And this is, uh, I'm sure, just because I have teenagers in my house, but this is a, a generation coming in to university over the next few years who are incredibly attuned to their own mental health and actually quite demanding about it in a, in a positive way. So I think that's going to shift the agenda. Um, whether we like it or not, which I'm sure we do, but uh, I think they're going to make that change happen. Thank you, thank you, Jenny. I'm just I'm just conscious of time, um, so I, I'd like us to go on and uh, talk about where we are now. Uh, I've said already that we've just gone through the peak for well-being and mental health incidents in student accommodation, uh, but this year, obviously, the context has been very different. Uh, Yvonne, could I turn to you on this first, please? W what are you seeing? And how is this impacting on staff well-being? Oh, well, it's been the, the strangest of all strange years, hasn't it? Um, yeah. and, and I don't think any of us really knew what was, was coming from one week to the next. Um, certainly at the point we went into, into lockdown, that was one set of, of factors. And, and we've moved through that and, and we got to September and, and whole swathe of, of new students arrived. Um, I think the big pressure certainly from my mind, the thing that I've been most focused on this semester is is the the hidden nature of lots of issues at the current time with students not being on campus in person, with engaging uh, through, you know, active blended learning and, and using all of those other mechanisms. We're not seeing some of the indicators that we would normally see where we would reach out and offer support proactively to students. So, I think that's, that's a really significant area at the moment is to make sure that those hidden issues are brought to the fore and that students feel able to talk about those issues in some some shape or form um, because otherwise it, it, it will impact very very significantly on on their mental well-being as, as we go forward and I think 
there's been lots in in the media and 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 in, in research around the, the the mental well-being time bomb that we're building up for ourselves. Um, and I suppose as much as we can do now around self-care, you know, getting individuals to identify when they've got an issue and they they need some support, to start thinking about that now. And and I absolutely agree with with Jenny's view on on the current generation of students coming through. They are very aware of of, of their mental health and what they want to do to be able to support that. And I think institutions need to be reacting much more swiftly to that in, in some instances. Thank you. And that's a, a, that hidden nature of the issues is, is such a fascinating uh, point. And, and one, as you say, you know, we're really going to need to think about. Um, and uh, on the self-care point, I just wanted to say, hold that thought, Yvonne, because I'm, I'm going to ask you for a self-care tip <laughs> at the end okay. of this podcast. But thank you very much. Um, uh, Jenny, is there anything else that you would like uh, to add uh, to, to that? Yeah, I just did want to mention our our survey uh, around student experience during COVID that we we published last week because actually in a a fairly grim year it was quite a nice surprise to get the results um, that actually the majority of students that were surveyed were were happy with their decision to go to university, sort of recognising it wasn't the experience that they expected or wanted, but actually it was okay and it was it was valuable to them and. Um, the vast majority, 93% saying um, they expect that they will continue their course and almost as many saying they expect they'll go back to their accommodations. So it, it felt just, uh, you know, a little bit like it, actually all the things that we've all done, universities, accommodation providers to make it the best it can be this year have have worked to an extent. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some students who uh, are not having such a great time, but uh, for the majority, they, they seem to be kind of okay, which was incredibly reassuring. That I think the one worrying finding we had there that was only just over a half felt that they were meeting people and making new friends. So I think one to, to look at, we know there's a really strong link between uh, social integration and well-being. So, you know, over the next couple of terms, and particularly if we start to return a little bit more to face-to-face, there's I think some more work to be done there to support students to make those connections. Thank you, Jenny. Um, and I just wondered, Rosie, uh, have you seen Unite's uh, student experience during COVID survey that uh, that Jenny referenced? And and then I thought uh, the other thing that would be really valuable for our listeners is, um, you know, what should we be looking out for in in student accommodation at the moment? And can you recommend any support resources that might help students? Yeah, I think it's really encouraging to see this kind of work being done. Anything that helps us better understand student voice. Um, I think a guiding principle probably for a lot of us during the this year and during the pandemic has been, you know, not to make assumptions, to keep listening to students and our communities. And, you know, that, that gives us a lot to think about. And um, there is also, of course, those voices that may not... Um, you know, feel for whatever reason that they can engage with with the different research we're all involved with. Um, so I think we've got to think of lots of different strategies to connect in with student voice. Um, I think in terms of, you know, Jenny's observation, I think it's a, a lot to be said for how, um, how brilliantly I think students and university colleagues have managed through all of this, considering how it is um, uncharted territory. 
Um, I think though we as an organization that, that are supporting students, we do want people to understand that we are seeing some real challenges for for a lot of different students alongside this. So we do believe it's important that students know where they can go for support, what can help them when they face difficulties. Over the last few months, we've been developing student space as a go-to resource for students during the pandemic where they can access confidential support via text, phone, email and web chat, explore online resources from anything to do with financial pressures or grief or dealing with conflict in social bubbles. And all of those are developed both with professionals and students. And finally, to find out about the help available at their uni. And we know that parents and colleagues across the university sector are also using that directory to quickly find out about the support available in institutions themselves. So I'd really encourage people to check out studentspace.org.uk and promote that to students so that they have those options available to them, particularly as we go over the Christmas period when we know a lot of traditional service provision won't be running in the same way. I'd also like to highlight that support for staff as well. And um, I think there are a, a lot of tools um, out there for staff to keep building their own knowledge and understanding of mental health and well-being. And um, something we've been working on is um, translating our in-person training for accommodation staff to be available online and um, so that people can find out about the challenges students might be experiencing, build communication skills, think about their boundaries and self-care. And there are a range of different training providers, options out there, but I will always encourage staff to think about, you know, what what they can do and then make, we need to make sure that the structures then support them with their any protocols and reporting. And I know that, that Jenny's been involved in publishing some work around that in the recent years as well. Thank you, Rosie. And and I've I've I checked out uh, the student space uh, website. I, I thought it was there were some terrific articles and webinars on that, and it was great to see that the funding, which as you say is so important, uh, has been extended on that. It looks an incredibly valuable resource. Um, Steve, what what are what are your thoughts in this area, please? So I think it's the starting place for me is that. Um, Students need to be empowered and staff need to be empowered to understand their own mental health and well-being. So all of these resources are fantastic and, and university websites are also linked to student space. Uh, and it's important that we connect these things up. The danger is that they're disconnected and then we lose things. But I'm also keen um, that we watch out for vulnerabilities. So COVID has sort of accentuated, amplified, if you like, some of the things that we see, you know, all uh, all the time in previous years, but it's just been amplified. So the whole piece around loneliness, bullying um, and isolation, you know, these student communities are not always um, great for everybody. And we just need to be alive to that and spot it early and then have proactive approaches and plans to be able to act quickly where we're spotting things aren't quite working. But I'm also keen really for students to understand that they have a big part to play for themselves looking after their own mental health and well-being. And I'm, I'm afraid there's some uncomfortable stuff that we're going to have to face up to. And that is the use of drugs and alcohol um, is something that we cannot continue just to say, well, that's that's young people. That is not something that we can just accept. I think we do have to educate. We have to work really hard to get people to understand that um, if they are engaging 
in particular around drug use, that there are some really significant consequences for their mental health and well-being. And we need to empower them to understand that. Um, it's, it's really important because what I'm seeing in COVID are increasing numbers of young people um, uh, engaging in risk behaviours that are putting them very much in a risk category. And the really, really sad thing is talking to head teachers, I'm seeing they're seeing the same thing in schools and colleges. So we really do need to concentrate and focus on this as part of the overall uh, packages and support that we can provide. But in the end, it's about empowering students to have the best understanding of themselves and then be able to make sensible life choices. Thank you, Steve. There's, um, I mean, there was much to have uh, explored there, Steve. Let's look to the future now. Um, we do have a few rays of optimism uh, for the end of this pan pandemic. Um, when it's finally all over, what do you think we will have learned about student well-being and mental health? And what do you think we'll do differently in the future? Can I come to you first on that one, Yvonne? Oh, well, I think... We've had an extended period of, of reflection, um, I think, in in the sense of lockdowns and and different ways of working. And I think that reflection will be really useful in, in the development of services, but also on an individual level for, for both students and staff who work in this area, reflecting on what they'd like to do better in the future. And certainly for lots of people that I, I, I talk to on, on, a, on a weekly basis, it's about that connectivity and making sure that we have that connectivity in place on campus so that we can easily find the right person to talk to or to access services or to ensure that we you know we don't feel the loneliness that that many people have felt in the last few months and i think that that connectiveness will be really critical going forward thank you yvonne jenny yeah just reflecting on this one of the things that i've taken from this is just that appreciation of how much of well-being and mental health starts with the meeting of basic needs which sounds like a really obvious thing to say but uh, you know of course when everything gets stripped away in a pandemic like this you know you, you start to see gaps in that but i think going forwards um there is just something about recognizing uh, for the future that you know it's a collaborative effort, isn't it? It's it's a university, it's the accommodation provider, it might be the student union, statutory services. Actually, are the basic needs being met before then we talk, uh, you know, about uh, further support? Um, I think also we've had more insight into what goes on behind the flat doors. And going back to Steve's point about uh, drug use and alcohol, that would be one example of that. I think, you know, some of that has now sort of spilled out uh, and we're seeing some of the outfall of that. So so that's a, a, an interesting learning to take away as well. Thank you, Jenny. Um, let's hear from uh, Rosie now uh, on this. What are your thoughts? I think there's, there's something that has to stick with us all about um, values that we want to guide us as people, as workplaces. This point about compassion, kindness, you know, sometimes those words are quite loaded and it kind of depends who's using them. But um, there's definitely something that will stick with people around um you know, being truly compassionate, seeking to really understand the perspective of the person that you're that you're speaking with, and being inclusive to their to their experience and needs as well. I hope we'll stick with that anyway. And I think other things are, are sticking out for us around student mental health. So, um, 
you know, I think a really clear message around investing in the mental health of the nation. I think that will come through globally. And um, I think every country that's been dealing with a pandemic is then going to be looking at, okay, and what's the knock-on effect to the well-being of our communities? So I think there'll be a strong message there around this has to be a, a priority issue that governments invest in. And that I hope that they'll look at it through that intersectional lens and that understanding that not everybody is going to be impacted um, equally by this situation. Thank you, Rosie. And, and uh, Steve, what are your thoughts, please? I think what COVID has done, it's, it's leveled everybody, I think, because now they understand more about mental health and well-being, their own mental health and well-being. So what we've seen on my campus is a real connection, staff and students. Um, I think a desire to collaborate and join things up in a way that perhaps we haven't in the past. And that compassion and kindness piece really coming to the fore, people caring about each other. Um, I guess the other thing that we've learned is how to do things quickly. Pace has been um, really, really important. And we've managed to cut through stuff that, you know, in the bureaucracies of universities uh, slowed things down. But I think we've now learned how to do things much quicker in partnership uh, and deliver, I think, significant improvements. So that's a real positive that I don't want to lose after we uh, get through this pandemic. Thank you, Steve. I, I was really struck um, throughout uh, those comments really about that compassion and kindness point. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that we're going to come on to talk about now is uh, uh, a sort of self-care tip. But one of the things I read was um, um, around, you know, staying connected with people and being prepared to be vulnerable, uh, which I think as we've all felt from time to time, I certainly have. And I've been astounded really when you are prepared to show your vulnerability, your humanity to other people, how they just step up and, you know, provide the comfort and support and indeed empowerment that um, that we, that you need as an individual to get through it, really. I just wanted to, you know, just share that fact because your reflections really just brought that up inside me. So I wanted to mention it. Um, uh, finally, then, um, there's a lot of student accommodation and student support um, service professionals out there who've been working extremely hard for a very long time and to be honest with no immediate uh, prospect of a let up um, could you please share uh, each uh, please could each of you share your favorite self-care tip could I start with you Yvonne um, I I think I mean this what this one is is silent a lot isn't it getting out and connecting with nature and in a mindful way so you know walking the dog or in, in my case riding a horse you know getting out there and actually taking your mind off everything that you've been doing during the day and doing something very very different is is so good for you and, and so beneficial thank you Yvonne I I, I I take my I take my dog out regularly I I, I would love to ride a horse but I <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I'm, six, I'm, six, I'm, six, I'm six foot four, so I always get horses called Caesar and Brutus, and they're all about, they're all about nineteen hands and terrify me. But there we go. But, but thank you very much that connection, that connection with nature. Um, Jenny, Jenny, what would be your self care tip? Oh, mine is just to be kind to yourself. I think just always remember whatever you've done or not done today, you know you're doing your best. So be as kind to yourself as you would be to other people. Thank you, Jenny. Um, Steve? 
I, I love that. Um, I think um, live live in the moment and don't live on social media. Live in the <laughs> real world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Uh, and finally, uh, Rosie. I think, given that I'm based in Leeds, I've got a dog really getting out and about in Yorkshire. So any any ability to get outside, getting your vitamin D, getting a bit active. Best evidence we've got in mental health and well-being is around being active. I'm not sporty, but just getting out and doing a walk, um, that space for reflection, I need it. So, yeah, giving yourself permission to get out and about and not just being on back-to-back calls, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amen. <laughs> Teams calls and back-to-back calls. It's been hard work, hasn't it, this summer and uh, now into the into the autumn too. Um, some brilliant tips there. Th- thank you. Um, we're out of time for today. Uh, But a huge thank you to Steve, uh, Rosie, Yvonne and Jenny for taking time out of your busy schedules to take part in this. Uh, You've given me and I'm sure our listeners plenty to think about and take away from this session. Um, We'll be back in December to chat about international students with a brand new panel. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this session, you can find the previous episodes on our Podbean page. Until next time, stay safe and thank you for listening. (music) 